there were circumstances that were beyond our control and things that we never would have anticipated or chosen. And we were, I mean, money was tight. We were struggling to have kids. Ministry wasn't going great. Family dynamics weren't good in extended family. We were just stuff going on. And one morning we sat at our kitchen table. We were eating breakfast together. We were both getting ready to go and take on the task for the day. And Amy was teary, and I was teary, and we were upset, <coughs> not at each other, but just And I looked up and I said these words to her, and I've repeated them several times since then. I looked up and I said, I am so glad I get to go through this with you. I would rather go through this with you than anyone else in the whole world. And so in that darkest time, I had no idea when I was back down through standing up nerves or laying in bed to a point. I had no idea that very soon the day would come when I looked across the breakfast table in tears and go, oh my goodness. I can't imagine that I could have disappointed any single parent out there. You have my prayers. You, you have my concern. You'd be great. But for this this young couple, we're no longer young. We look back and go, we had no idea what we were doing. We were hopelessly in love and carried us for a while. And then we learned that there was new depths of love. And that carried us to new places. And I think our founding fathers, as they said, you know, we believe that God created all people to be free. I don't think they had any idea about what that would mean for us. The beliefs that we held in America. I don't think they had any idea what that would mean about people on the other side of the world who may never come to America, but we believe they were created to be free. And so, decades later, century and a half later, we would send our young men halfway around the world to fight wars so that we could set those people free too and give them the opportunity to be men. They didn't know that, but that's what it meant. And so, being free indeed is a contest that we just kind of get to scratch the surface. We just get to push the dust aside. But we never really grasp the depth and the width of freedom as God intends it. And so we're going to start this series, and I want to talk to you a little bit about how God really desires, deeply desires, to break bondage in the lives of people everywhere. So I'll jump us to the next one. Here's a path. This morning, I want to talk to you about God's definition of freedom and what He really intends when He wants people to be free. And then we're gonna we're gonna go down a couple of rabbit trails over the next three weeks. We're gonna talk about these streets of sin and how that happens and what that looks like. We're gonna be talking about these streets of shame. Sometimes God has forgiven us from our sin, but we still carry it and we still feel it and we don't want to talk about it and we don't want anyone else to know about it. And can we be free from that shame? And then I want to shift gears on the fourth week. I just want to talk about what we're free from, what we've been released from. But I want to talk about what we're free to do and become, and how we're free for new opportunities as well. So that's going to be our journey. If you want to track along with us, um, come back and join us. So let's talk about God's definition of freedom because. We have a definition, and generally speaking for us, especially here in America, 
our definition of freedom is usually loaded with a lot of political and uh, governmental ideas. That, that the wisdom of our founding fathers sought to restrict the role of government so as not to interfere with the freedom of people to choose things that they want to do. And so they structured this freedom in these terms that said, you know, the government cannot stop you from traveling, cannot stop you from speaking your mind, cannot stop you from worshiping in the way that you want to worship, cannot come into your home and seize your property or search your property without cause. And they went on and on, and then they built out this Bill of Rights that said, you know, as an American, there's certain things that the government is not allowed to do. And for us, on the 4th of July, we're so happy about that, we try to burn the nation down. Right? So we understand these personal freedoms and privileges that uh, having a government that is kept from interfering in every area of our life. We're free to do as we think we can pursue things in America that people in other parts of the world do. But God's definition goes way beyond that. It's much broader than that. And I would suggest that it has more to do with what we are freed in order to participate in and not to free from what has restricted us. So we're going to go forward here and see the next one as well. I'm reminded of this. I said I'd tell you why I'm coming back to this, this issue. Um, we're in a new year, and the new year usually brings around new intentions in our life. It's, it's a time where we have gotten used to people that adopt resolutions or say, okay, the holidays are over, and usually it's things like, I need to lose weight, I need to save more money, I need to be a better person somehow, and so I'm going to make some changes at this point in my life. And we have this new year, we get a new start, we, it's, it's kind of a fictitious thing, just another day on the calendar, but it's a time where we choose to give everybody a chance to reconsider changing So nobody did these long-term loans. Everybody did this, you know, we'll do a loan, but it's 
Seven years is going to be taken care of. And everybody knew that on that seventh year, everybody looked around and everybody was back on the same playing field. Everybody's back to zero. Everybody gets to start again. It's, it's like making it into, sorry, I'm getting forcing the priest to come in. It's like making it into the playoffs. And it doesn't matter if you're the Dallas Cowboys on a terrible record and you just squeak into the playoffs or you're the Kansas City Chiefs and they're going to win it all. <laughs> Everybody starts at zero. I didn't hear that one. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's the thing. We come into a new year, and, and in some ways, maybe psychologically or the only way, but we think about, okay, we're starting at zero. We get another chance. Let's, let's go again. It's a new year. And we want to move into the new year and go, I, I want to be a better person. I want to be healthier. I want to be stronger. I want to be more financially free. I want to have better relationships with my neighbors, my family, my friends. But we're still stuck or we're still snagged by the habits that we've cultivated, by the decisions that we've made, not just in 2019, but for some of us, the things that we've lived with for decades. And these things just hold on to us. And they're, they're habits that have become so much a part of us that they're just gross. They just happen. And some of them aren't necessarily patently evil. They aren't the kinds of things that are going to get us thrown in jail or make our spouse leave us. But they're not healthy and they're not strong. They're not good. And then they add up their debilitation. And we're just so snagged by this stuff. We just carry this stuff with us. And this stuff then holds us back and restricts our movement with the Holy Spirit. For some of us, this stuff is so big, and it has been a part of us for so long, and it's changed so tight that we adopt kind of a fatalistic attitude that says, you know, this is just the way it is. For me, this is my lot in life. And so we can say, you know what, this is just the way it is for me, and, and, and we have a tendency then to fall into the patterns where we believe that more change are going to get broken, and this is where we see things shift from just being a habit to an addiction. Where we see things shift from just being a habit to being a lifestyle. And we just go, you know, I, I can't I can't give up. And there's you know we could go through the whole list alcohol, porn, overspending, overeating. Right? We can just go on and on. We all know the list. And we sit here on days like today and go, I would love to just get it back, but it's so big and it's so deep. And maybe it isn't necessarily something that I have done or have I created. Maybe it's something that someone did to me. Maybe it's a sin that was perpetrated around me or even through me, and I cannot get it. It hurts so deep that any inkling of being near that, and I'm incapacitated to do it. And so instead of a habit that becomes an addiction, it's an arm that becomes an addiction. And it changes our way of thinking. We think, oh, this, this is who I am. I'm just, I'm just broken, and I'm broken so that I cannot change. And that holds us back because that is not what God intended. 
and we are settling for a mindset that is short of what God really wants for us. And so what happens to us is, is we start into a series of steps and attitude and spirit that really change who we are. And I heard you call this a spiritual chain reaction. It's not really a chain reaction on mom or Paul. It's more like links being hung on a chain and connected to every time. And so, you know, there was a bad decision. Maybe it was by you, maybe it was by somebody else. And that bad decision was followed by another bad decision and another bad decision. And then that created a pattern. And that pattern became a habit. That habit became an addiction. Or that habit became an attitude. And it is now a part of me. And I cannot imagine being without that. <coughs> and you guys are saying... After preaching to a bunch of drug addicts about me today, let me tell you the statistics tell us that several of us here battle addiction of some sort. And the statistics tell us that several of us here are survivors of abuse of some sort. <coughs> and so this is us. This isn't just, you know, the homeless people downtown. It's not just, you know, the broken people in prison that have done really, really heinous stuff. This is us. These are the decisions we make. These are the things that have sank us. This is the baggage we carry. So it's a new year, but we're stuck with these same old things. And for some of us, we just go, hey, that's the way it is. John Orford, the writer, he tells a story about the first church that, that he pastored, and there was a guy called Harry. And when we got there, this guy was there to meet him, <clears throat> and and um, as happens from time to time for pastors and churches, the first guy to meet him was Harry, and Harry was a grumpy guy. I mean, that's just his attitude, and so John Rufford, hey, nice to meet you, and he goes, hey, you know, you need to know that this church is not working, and you're going to have to do something about it. You know, hey, welcome, I'm glad you're here. You know, we're working on these things. Well, that's the best way it was, and over the process of the next couple of years, he just noticed that Harry's initial response to everything was kind of a grumpy, negative attitude. And it bothered him because he thought, I mean, this guy's a leader of the church. This guy's a respected person. We allow him to be in leadership positions, and he's very, very negative and, and confrontational and, and hard to get along with. And so John went to some of the people there, and he said, you know, I'm concerned about Harry, and I noticed this, and he brought up this, this pattern, this habit that had become a lifestyle for Harry. And the response he got from people is, that's just Harry. That's just the way he is. And I want to tell you that as I read that story, I was, first of all, I was grieved for Harry. Because I just think, but that's not what God intends. That's not what puts a smile on God's face. That's not the way he transforms people. But then I was even more grieved for those people that, that actually John had gone to. Because they themselves had given up on the idea, on the concept, that it's not supposed to be this way, and the work of Jesus Christ is to set it right. And so it wasn't just a failure in Harry's spiritual life. It was a failure in that church for them to grasp the power and the extent and the distance that the gospel would go in the life of so I'll get us to the next slide here. Passionate moment. 
over the next few weeks, I'm going to kind of process it through Romans 5, 6, 7, 8. It's, it's just my favorite book of the Bible because I love the theology of Romans. So bear with me. But this is what Paul says to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to read these two verses. Read through the whole thing. It's kind of confusing to me. Paul says, but the free gift of Christ isn't like Adam's failure. It's not like Adam's sin where original sin came into being. Okay? It isn't like a free gift like Adam's failure. If many people died through what one person did wrong, God's grace is multiplied even more for many people with the gift of the one person, Jesus Christ, that comes to save them. The gift isn't like the consequences of one person's sin. The judgment that came from one person's sin led to punishment, but the free gift that came off of many failures led to the verdict of acquittal. If death ruled because of one person's failure, then those who receive the multiplied grace and the gift of righteousness will even more certainly rule in life through the one person, Jesus Christ. So, what Paul says is, yes, one man's sin broke the dam. One man's sin ushered in sin. It, it opened the door that couldn't be closed again. Couldn't be undone. But then he says, but you know, just as Adam, through one man's action, affected everybody, one man is coming, one man has come through the Christ, but it's different. It's not the same. This is a gift. This is not a judgment. This is not a curse. This is a gift. And the gift is a gift of grace. So just as judgment and guilt and shame went through the door after Adam took it open, grace comes in, and the possibility of grace comes in. And this is a gift. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul says it's an indescribable gift. It's such a great gift, and it has such profound effects on people that it's hard to put it into words. And even for some of us that have followed Jesus and loved Jesus for decades, if you say, so what was it like to be free from your sin? Some of us would have to sit here and look for words that would adequately express it. That's how profound it is. It's more profound than, than anything else I've ever experienced. If you said, what was it like that first time you took Kayleen? I could, just, I could describe that to you for the first time. I won't, but I could. But if you say, what was it like? I could try. And I could probably put some words to it. But just like our founding fathers had no idea the breadth of freedom they were talking about, I, as a sinner, had no idea the breadth and the depth of freedom that God was offering. And I still don't. And I still forget, just like you. And there's times when I think I messed up. And, and maybe it wasn't even egregiously sinful, but it was insufficient. It was haphazard. It was not sin my best. And I messed up. And surely God is angry with me. But he has given us 
this indescribable of his goodness. And it's not just a, hey, you know what? Let's pretend it didn't happen kind of thing. It's not just a, hey, I'll forget about that. Or I'll give you a mulligan. You know, I'll, I'll give you a pass on that one. It's different than that. It's much greater than that. Because the gift of God's grace is a gift that actually breaks you. It actually sets free. I remember as a kid, another missionary couple, my, my parents, Spurgwood, had this painting in their home. They had a lot of artwork. They, they loved art, and they bought paintings in their travels. And there was this one in their home that caught my attention as a kid. And every time we would visit their house, I would look at it. It was a big painting. And it was a painting. Uh, I, I found it again. If it rings a bell with you, go to a Google search and send it to me. How's that? But the painting was of these people, and they were walking along, and they had these boulders, these big rocks, chained on their back. And they were walking along from, from okay, i got to think about this. They were walking from the left side of the, the painting, and they came up to this cliff, this precipice, and in this crevasse, in this precipice, was fire. And at the edge of the cliff, there were angels, and the angels were taking the chains off, and the rocks were falling off the people's backs. And those people were going across a bridge, and on the other side was this promised land, this heavenly realm. But the people that were refusing were falling off the cliff in the fire. Now, for a little kid, this was enough imagery Sin but I remember looking at that painting and that picture of people walking under the weight of these boulders that they were carrying that had no value at all and then being set free and all of a sudden walking straight back across this beautiful promised bridge into a promised city. I just like, wow. And I'm grateful for that artwork because it's given me a visual thing to hang on to when I meet people who are still in bondage. And it's a reminder to me that Jesus' grace still works. Now, for some of us, those chains are broken in a moment of prayer, perhaps at the front of a church or a canteen or an altar. And we just say, Dear Jesus, I, I feel so guilty. I want to be set free. And we'll talk about that more next week. But for some of us, these are things that hang on and the chains are broken, but we hold on to them, and they're in our lives. And that was really pretty hard. And the chains are broken, and God has set us free, but, you know, we re-examine and fix another little bit of the period under the night. And we kind of learned to let that stuff go. And the gift of salvation is there, and the, the promise of heaven is there. But we're still carrying stuff that God does not intend us to carry. Here's the other thing that I, the other problem I have with that picture is those people were just set free and walked across the bridge like, woohoo! But there was no sense of what they were now that those chains had been broken. Paul says, in another place, to another church, he says, you can choose to be slaves to sin, or you can be slaves to righteousness. So, 
He doesn't say you can choose to be slaves to sin or you can choose not to be slaves to God. He says, now you choose what you will carry. You choose what you're going to invest in. And you have the opportunity to choose something life-giving rather than something new. It's a new change. It's a new bond. So go back to that idea of the Jubilee years, that seven-year thing in, in Jewish culture where you're getting set free. Those slaves were brought in after seven years of the master saying, it's the Jubilee year, you guys get to go free, and you are free to go. But there was, there was some really fine print in there. And in the law, God said, if a servant has reached that year and chooses to remain with the master, they say, you know what, I know I can go free, I can walk away from here, I can go find my own place, my own, I can raise my own sheep, I can raise my own wife, whatever, I have freedom. But if that servant says, I want to stay with my master, I know my master, I work with my master, we're on good terms, perhaps even to the point of I love my master. In fact, that's what he says. The slave can say, no, I love my master. And then the master can take them to their door close for their house. That's what they told him to do. And the master said, take them to the door close of the house and take them all, take a nail, and drive that nail through their ears. That's horrible, isn't it? You know, hold them up to the doorpost, pull their ear out, and whack a hole through their ear because now they are marked and they are enslaved forever. Because they have made a decision, I love my master, and I would rather be bound to them than free to company. It's an awesome thought, isn't it? It's a scary thought. What are the next ones when we get around? Romans 6 says this in verse 17 and 18, but thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you gave full-hearted obedience to the teaching that is handed down to you, which proves a pattern. Now that you have been set free from sin, you've become slaves of sin. So there's this thing where we've traded, we've traded being in to our sin which kills us. The, the sin for which the wages are death. Right? That's also in Romans chapter 7. And we've traded that for being slaves to righteousness. So you cannot say, God has set me free, but I've still got all this stuff in my life. I've still got all this sin and all this guilt and all this anger. At some point, the two are irreconcilable. They cannot be there together. And so, being set free from sin, which we'll talk about more in depth next week, means that our guilt can be removed from us. It means that we don't have to live in that kind of bondage anymore. But it also means that then we are set free to something. And I would suggest to you that what God is looking for is he's looking for people who love him so much they would say, you know what? I will give up those chains of sin and pain and suffering and shame is wrong, guilt. I will give up those chains to be a bond servant and life servant of God. 
and he can take me to the door and drive a nail in my ear. Sound familiar? <coughs> because now I'm his forever. No matter what he has for me, I belong to him. I was reading recently on Facebook. Um, new group popped up for some of us free Methodists and you might have gotten it. An invitation to be part of it's a Light and Life magazine group where you can comment on the magazine articles you get in Light and Life magazine. And uh, a guy who's a retired superintendent of a little conference that never was my superintendent, but I greatly respected him. He posted on there a comment. He said, you know, I quit asking people if they're saved. Sounds rather controversial, doesn't it? I don't ask people to save me. He said, what I now ask them is, you love Jesus. Because I'm not interested so much in whether they're going to heaven near as much as I'm interested in are their hearts captivated with their commitment full because they really love Jesus. They fall into love with him. Because here's the thing. Just like the Lord gave it in the Old Testament, that if they love their master, if we love our master, he says, give me change, I'm yours. And I will secure myself. I will bond myself to you, and I will not let you go. And that means I can put behind me the things that harm and hurt and destroy me, and that means I now am going to take up the things that empower me and heal me and strengthen me to become the person that God is. Let's pray with you. Lord God, we need to be set free again. And maybe some of us here have never really felt that freedom. The freedom to put behind us the stuff in our past and to say, okay, Jesus, here we are, shackling to you, offering your ways because I love you. So Father God, whether we've got a big boulder chained to our back or we've Today's the day where we want to cut those things down so that our hands are open and our back is straight and we can now pick up what you want us to pick up and do what you want to and become the people you want.